while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will stand and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at, the left, at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink, be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So he called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. not sure what you think of New Year's resolutions, but I'm a bit of a fan. So I've come up with a few New Year's resolutions for myself. As Lauren pointed out, our, it's our anniversary, we've gone through a year of marriage. 2019, I want to be a tolerable husband. If she's not sick of me by the end of the year, it's been a good year. Uh, it's also my last year of uni 2019, so you may have heard the phrase, peas make degrees. I'm aiming to get straight 50% for all of my subjects. 51% is 1% too much. And last, I want to stay fit enough to walk up the stairs to our unit. These are not the sorts of New Year's resolutions that we make, are they? We don't strive to be mediocre. We tend to strive to try and be great. And I think we can all think of examples of people that we might consider to be great. You know, we've got famous sports stars, billionaires, celebrities, uh, people with millions of followers on Instagram or YouTube. When I think of greatness, I typically think of some of the names that most people would know. You know, Sir Donald Bradman, uh, the great batsman. Harry Houdini, the great escape artist. 
Steve Jobs, founder of Apple. I don't know about you, but I'm not striving for that level of greatness. So is Jesus talking to me when he says in that passage, whoever wants to become great among you? Well, greatness isn't just fame. We can strive for greatness in many things. To be a great parent, to making sure that your children have the best upbringing they can. To be a great friend, known for being loyal and great to hang around. To be a great employee or boss and have all of your hard work recognized and appreciated by those you work with. There are many ways in which we might try to be great. It seems like there's something built into us, built in where we want to be great, we want to be significant. And we want that significance to be recognized. We don't necessarily need it to be recognized on a global scale, but we do want to be recognized. The employee wants the employer to recognize their hard work. The gym goer wants uh, their peers to recognize all of their hard work and, you know, they're looking good, uh, finding greatness in their appearance. While we might not want to be great like a billionaire or a sports star, we do try to find greatness in something and the eyes of someone for that greatness to be recognized. And it, is, it doesn't need to be global. Uh, like some of those names that jump to mind, no. Uh, it can be just in our place of work that we want that recognition, being the go-to person. It can be with our friends as the funny one. We can even seek recognition in our own church community, you know, someone that serves a lot. But the recognition doesn't even need to come from anyone else. The recognition can come from ourselves. I could come up with a list of New Year's resolutions for myself, and at the end of the year go, yes, I accomplished that, I'm great, I did what I taught to achieve. We can view ourselves as great in our own eyes. The question isn't, do we strive to be great? The questions are, in whose eyes do we want to be great? And how do we try to achieve that greatness? So in uh, the PowerPoint, I've got a kind of direction that we're going to be going. In the passage, we see two vastly different ways of trying to achieve greatness. There's the world's way, and there's Jesus' way. And in the world's way, we're going to follow the 12 people that were closest to Jesus, his 12 disciples. In verses 32 to 34, we see that they're following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And he lets them know what's going to happen when he gets there. This is the third prediction of his death. Now, his disciples don't fully get it at this point. But they know that what's going to happen when he gets there is going to be big. So James and John, two of the 12 disciples, they see this as their opportunity. They realize that everything that they've been waiting for is about to happen. So, that Jesus is about to come into his glory. Their response is to try and make a move for their own greatness. They approach Jesus with a request. They want for one of them to sit at Jesus' right hand and the other to sit at his left. They want the highest positions of status that Jesus can give them. But do you see how they've done it? They've tried to be sneaky. 
and they've tried to be manipulative. In verse 35, they go up to Jesus and they ask him for this favor. And they ask him, can you please say yes to this favor before we even tell you what the favor is? They want Jesus to say yes before they've even made the request. They're trying to use Jesus to get to their own greatness. Jesus, this guy that they've been following around, they're wanting to use him as a stepping stone to greatness. I wonder if you've ever met people like that. People that are willing to use others just to build themselves up. It feels terrible, doesn't it? And it's really self-serving. Think of it this way. I helped lead the youth group here at Trinity Church Brighton. It would be very easy for me to find my greatness in that. You know, the appreciation that comes from the parents for helping looking after the youth. The appreciation that comes from Cameron, the senior minister, for helping run a ministry. But if my motivation for serving in the youth group is to try and win the favors of others, I would just be using the teenagers as a stepping stone to gain that favor. And if I'm doing that, then I'm not really caring for them, just for myself. And if I was doing that, if it all got too hard, if the effort was no longer worth the reward, I would just leave. If I were using them as a stepping stone, I'm ultimately just looking out for myself. Being selfish. And then I wouldn't be able to put their needs first. And I'm sure you would agree that that's not the sort of person that we want looking after our young people. Now, I don't think what I do with the youth group is bad, and hopefully you don't either. Because serving is a fantastic thing to do. And I would never say that trying to gain the appreciation of others is why I'm doing it. But if I'm honest, and if I think about it, there is a part of me that does a enjoy that sort of appreciation that I get. And I think that's one of the greatest traps. Is when we find our greatness is achieved by looking out for others. We might try to be great by doing things like leading youth ministry or giving to charity or volunteering. And it makes it very easy to tell ourselves that we're doing it for other people. When really our motivation can be influenced by that self-serving path to greatness. And I think most of the time we don't even realize it. For example, have you ever had one of those friends that uh, gives a lot to charity and does a lot of volunteer work and they let you know about it? Every time you have a conversation and they see the opportunity, they just slip it in there. This is hard because volunteering and giving to charity are great things to do. And we probably aren't thinking that this, we're doing this to try and impress people. But still, there is the ability there to be using people that we claim to help to build up our own greatness, to build up how we're seen in the eyes of others. It's why in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, it says... Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you do give to the needy, 
Do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what you do in secret, will reward you. But even then, there is risk that our motivation is self-seeking, in that we hope that God will see what we do and reward our service. Part of the test would be, uh, would we be willing to do this service even if no one else knew about us? But even then, that can lead us to seeing our greatness in our own eyes. Yes, I'm a good person. I have done good things. We can go feeling good about ourselves. This is one of the ways that the world tries to achieve greatness. It uses other people to build up one's own greatness. James and John even acknowledge that they are willing to do anything to get ahead. In verse 38 and 39, Jesus asks them if they can pay the cost. And they say yes, seemingly without even hesitating. And they demonstrate it. They demonstrate this willingness by trying to trick their friend and mentor, Jesus, and also by trying to get in before the other ten to secure their own position of greatness. So how do the other ten react? Do they go, good on James and John for being go-getters? No. In verse 41, we say they did not appreciate what James and John did. By trying to get those places with Jesus behind their backs, they were indignant. And my instant reaction is to agree with them. To think they're justified in that response. But Jesus has different ideas. He brings them all together to talk about greatness. You see, I don't think that the ten were upset so much about how James and John had tried to trick Jesus, so much as they were upset that they didn't get in first. It wasn't that James and John uh, would, had done the wrong thing, but that they'd tried to undermine the other ten's own chance at greatness, prevent each of them the opportunity of getting that left and right hand seats next to Jesus. Otherwise, uh, the ten were concerned with their own greatness. Otherwise, they would not have been so upset. Now, let's just think for a moment. These are the 12 disciples. These are literally the 12 people that were closest to Jesus. And they were all concerned with who would be able to get to sit at Jesus' left and right. They were already going to be great by how close they were to Jesus. But they were all concerned with who would be the closest, who would be the greatest. Because that's the thing, isn't it? Great is a relative term. For someone to be great, it means that someone has to be not great. If you guys have seen the movies, The Incredibles, uh, there's the villain, Syndrome, and his great evil villainous plot is to give everyone superpowers. It doesn't seem like much of a villainous plot to me. 
but his motivation is this. He reveals his motivation in that this understanding of greatness. He says, if everyone is special, then no one is special. For someone to be great, the implication is that someone is not great. And Jesus illustrates this in verse 42, describing how greatness is seen in the world. That the, rules, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. The implication is that someone has to be underneath them. And if greatness is a relative term, then we find ourselves comparing ourselves to others. If we are concerned with our own greatness, it is always at how we do compared to others. It isn't, am I a good runner? It's a, can I run faster than the next guy? And this is one of the reasons I felt that I had to get rid of Facebook. When Lauren and I got engaged, uh, we put up an announcement on Facebook. At around the same time, there was another couple that also got engaged, and they put up their announcement. And I remember logging in every few hours to see how many likes we got compared to them. <laughs> we were getting all of this support by people that were close to us. But somehow that didn't matter. What mattered to me, what I was concerned with, was how many digital thumbs up I was getting compared to the next guy. But if we're always concerned with how, our, if we're always concerned with how we compare to others, if our greatness is dependent on how we stand compared to others, well, we get trapped. We either get crushed by the expectations of not matching up to others, by feeling inferior to them. Or, on the other side of the coin, we feel proud and look down on others. And it can be, bring problems into our relationships. When we compare ourselves to others, to try and increase our own greatness, we can tear down those that are around us. It could be in how we talk about others, saying things maybe negative about them to try and make ourselves look better. But it can also be just how we think. If we get that self-recognition, we can just tear them down in our own minds. When I was in year 12 at school, I considered myself to be one of the smart ones. And then one of my friends got ducks. They got recognition as being the smart person in the school. Instantly, I was comparing myself to them. So I made all of these excuses in my own head about why she didn't actually deserve ducks. I was coming up with excuses like, oh, no, she did easy subjects like tourism and English communications while I was doing specialist maths and physics. My concern for my own greatness led me to mentally tear down her achievements rather than celebrate with her. And why did I feel that need to tear down her achievements? Well, really, if we follow the world's path to greatness, it is rooted in our achievements. And our achievements could be a wide range of things. It could be that academic grades, the spouse that we have, having the latest and greatest technology, our position at work, the skills that we have, our wealth, our family, our home, the list goes on. These are some of the things where we can try and find our greatness. 
But the thing is, greatness like this, even if we do find it, it doesn't last. Someone will always come along who's better, who's got a nicer house, better grades. And if we find our greatness in that, well then, once we've lost it, we're back to being crushed under not being able to meet those expectations. For me, it was my grades. As I said, in year 12, I considered myself one of the smart ones. I did quite well compared to some of my peers. And then I went to university. And I realized I went from being a relatively big fish in a small pond to a very small fish in a very large pond. If we try to find our greatness in our achievements, even if we do get to that point where we can feel ourselves to be great, we will always find that there will be someone who is greater. So that's the world's path to greatness. It uses other people to improve one's own greatness. It constantly leaves us in this state of comparing ourselves to others, either being proud and looking down on people or being crushed under the weight of the expectations. And even if we do find our greatness in this way, it doesn't last. Is there another way? Well, this is where Jesus' way comes in. In verses 43 to 45, Jesus gives his disciples a contrasting way. He said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks for the memory verse there, Cameron. <laughs> Jesus says the path to greatness is not to be concerned with our own greatness, but rather to put all others before ourselves. And Jesus gives himself as an example here. And this isn't Jesus just tooting his own horn, saying, look at me how good I am at this. He is the one that already had all of the greatness. In Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, it says this of Jesus. Who, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is God, creator of everything, the one that had all of the greatness, yet he gave up all of it, putting others before himself even so far as dying on a cross. This is the example that we are given. Give up all of our greatness for others. That is a huge ask. I don't know about you, but I struggle to put others before myself even at the best of times, let alone putting myself very last. And even when I do manage to put other people before myself, it doesn't last very long before I do something selfish again. The problems are much like the problems in the world's way. That this sort of greatness can be fleeting, 
or it crushes us under a standard that we cannot meet when we compare ourselves to Jesus. Notice that the problems with this are a lot like the problems in the world's path. That we are comparing ourselves, that it's based on achievements. Does this mean that Jesus' way is wrong? The thing is, the problem is not with Jesus' way. The problem is with us. The problem isn't so much putting others before ourselves, but rather that our motivation, that our concern is with our own greatness. Doing good things is absolutely a great thing to do, but our hearts mess with it. And that is why Jesus needed to come. Why the great one needed to come and put us before himself. That he had to die on a cross. Because in doing so, he ransomed us. He paid the cost for all of our selfishness. And this allowed us to be adopted into God's family. And it frees us from having to try and find our greatness in the world's way. The creator of everything, who has all of the greatness, loved us so much that he gave everything so that we could be adopted into God's family. And Romans 8, 6 to 17 says, says that we have been adopted into God's family, that we are co-heirs with Jesus. And as co-heirs, we get to share in his glory in his greatness. It doesn't matter our wealth, our popularity, our skills, because none of these things can compare to the greatness that we have been given by Jesus. This is where James, John, and the other 10 disciples actually got it right. They knew that greatness would come from association. Association with the greatest. We don't need our greatness to come from our achievements anymore because the great one has given us his greatness. But what does that mean? What does that look like for us today? Firstly, it means that we don't need to be crushed under the weight of the expectations when we're trying to find our greatness. When some people seem to have it all together when they seem to be great and that we don't feel like we measure up, we can be reminded that we are great because of what Jesus has done for us. That he has already made us great. Now, there will still be times when we feel that weight, when we feel those expectations, when we compare ourselves to others. The best thing we can do is be reminded of how Jesus is the great one and that he has shared that greatness. One way to do this is by reading the Gospel of Mark. It's a story of Jesus' life where we get to see his greatness and his ultimate achievement in sharing that greatness with us. If you haven't read a Gospel in a while, awesome New Year's resolution for 2019, read at least one of the Gospels. Secondly, on the other side of the coin, if we compare ourselves to others and we feel proud, when we feel that we are great, 
when we feel like we have achieved. We can recognize that it is a good thing to have achieved and to do good things. But recognizing the greatness that comes from those achievements is small next to the greatness that we have already been given by Jesus. And that we have security in that. We know that it's not something that we are going to lose. And when we have that security, it allows us to use our own greatness for the sake of others, for the benefit of others. Rather than being concerned with maintaining our own greatness, we are able to lower ourselves to build others up. With the greatness found in Christ, we don't need to claw our way up. For example, at work, it could mean giving someone else the credit for something that we are due. It means it's all right with being all right with building up someone else's credit, even if we don't get it ourselves. And lastly, I want to say, while doing good things, even if our motivation isn't always right, even if our motivation can be for our own greatness, this does not mean that we should stop doing good things. But rather, while doing good things, we should work on our own motivations. And as we work on our motivations, as we more realize that it is Jesus that has given us his greatness, we will better be able to do good. That we'll better be able to put others before ourselves and follow that example that Jesus has given us. I'll invite Hillary up to pray for us. I think that for some of us, uh, the slightly older ones, it would seem that it was only yesterday that we were at the beginning of 2018. And now here we are again, ready for New Year's Eve celebrations. It has been another year of waiting for the return of Christ in his glory, and sometimes wondering why God still chooses to wait. My favorite writer, Henri Nouwen, says what he thinks about this. He says, waiting is essential to the spiritual life. But waiting as a disciple of Jesus is not an empty waiting. It is a waiting with a promise in our hearts that makes already present what we are waiting for. We wait during Advent for the birth of Jesus. We wait after Easter for the coming of the Spirit. And after the ascension of Jesus, we wait for his coming again in glory. We are always waiting. But it is a waiting in the conviction that we have already seen God's footsteps. Waiting for God is an active, alert, and joyful waiting. As we wait, we remember for whom we are waiting. And as we remember him, we create a community ready to welcome him when he comes. So with that in mind, let us pray.
while we are waiting. Lord, we wait in anticipation for your return. But as we do, we know that we can continue to bring our prayers and requests to you. We thank you for this year that is almost at an end. There are many things to be thankful for. And I ask you in the congregation to take a moment or two of silence now to recall the blessings that God has shown to you this year. Just take a moment of silence. Lord, we thank you for the progress in the establishment of the Trinity Church at Woodcroft. And we ask for wisdom for those involved. Give them patience and guide them with your spirit. Comfort those who will be sorry to lose friends from this congregation, those who may move to Woodcroft. There have been sad events for some of us this year. Take a moment now to silently express your sorrow to God and to ask.